We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Torre show is usually about exploring success, but this week I wasn't feeling like that. I saw the power go out in Puerto Rico again, and I said, I got to do something different. I got to use this big platform we've built in a different way. Sometimes this show is going to be about exploring something harder. This week, I want to look at Puerto Rico through the eyes of people who are very close to the island. And I want to talk about this nightmare they're going through. A part of America, really a colony of America, has been left for dead so that the rich can take it over and make it theirs. For months, many on the island have been without power and without water, and for some on the island, without hope. Good afternoon, this is Ronco. Ronco is a painter. I live in Puerto Rico. I live in Guaynabo. I wanted to hear someone from Puerto Rico tell me how things are there now. Ronco says in the cities, things are mostly fine, but as you move out to the country... Life is really hard. The people in the country, those people are not doing well. they basically been forgotten. Out in the country, there's a lot of horror stories. I'll give you an example. It's a family in the town of Hajuja, which is in the country side, okay? This family is 11 people, and they have no power. They lost their home. They built basically a shacky home out of wood and panels, you know, and they're living there. One of the sons, and this is one of many horror stories, is taking care of his older mother, his older brother, which has epilepsy, and they're trying to make a living. Conditions like that have led to a spike in suicides. Liz Martinez saw one of the suicides. She's a traveling sales rep who's got family on the island. She's on the island a lot for work and family. There's a guy weeks ago, they had to stop traffic because he jumped in front of a a truck on PR 26, which is one of their main highways. And, you know, they found out later that the guy had lost his home. He was trying to find a job. He wanted to get out of the island. He was trying to find his family in the Northeast. They couldn't help him, and he just felt disparaged. So there's this increase in suicides in Puerto Rico that they haven't seen in a long time. The suicide rate in Puerto Rico has spiked since Hurricane Maria. Over 100 people have killed themselves since the storm. And there could be even more. A lot of the suicides are happening in the mountainous areas of Santa Isabel, Macau. They're happening in different areas where there's no power. Suicide attempts have tripled. And there's been a spike in suicidal ideation. A lot of people are in despair. 
this old man told me, when you have no money, no food, no water, and you can't feed your family, it's a cowardice way out. But it's better than sitting there and trying to figure out, well, should I go rob that tourist? Should I become a drug dealer and sell drugs and, and hurt and kill my people? Are you kidding? I called my friend Rosa Clemente, a journalist and an activist who's working on a documentary called PR Rising. It's really powerful. You can watch it now online. Rosa sees a bleak picture. Basically, Puerto Rico is being sold to the highest bidder, and those highest bidders are usually corporations or an increasing number of young white men who use cryptocurrency to gain access to land on the island at pennies on the dollar. It speaks to what Naomi Klein has been speaking about for years, disaster capitalism, that any time there's a disaster, that may be what we call a natural disaster, that corporations will come in and seize that opportunity to privatize everything. Part of creating a paradise for the wealthy has been closing hundreds of public schools, privatizing utilities, and strongly encouraging Puerto Ricans to leave. This is a forced exodus, that they want a Puerto Rico without Puerto Ricans. They want to make it into a super island that you can just vacation, and so many people have been forced to leave. So many people have been told that if they cannot find their deed to their house, their house no longer belongs to them. This island, which is part of America, is being transformed at warp speed into something else a sort of paradise for the rich who are taking advantage of a people in crisis. That's what disaster capitalism is all about. For more on that, I called Naomi Klein, who wrote the book on disaster capitalism. It was called The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, and it was a bestseller. She's an author, an activist, and a filmmaker. There's this phrase that comes up so often in the aftermath of disasters. And every time I hear it, it really sets me off. And that's the blank slate or the blank canvas. I heard it after Hurricane Katrina. I heard it when I was covering the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The idea that 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 suddenly you have a blank slate or a blank canvas um, where you can kind of do anything. Uh, and and it's a kind of crazy idea because the, the canvas in a war-torn country or, you know, a region that's just been slammed by a Category 5 hurricane um, is anything but blank. I mean, it is a mess. It is, it is pure rubble and misery. But from the, from the perspective of, of real estate developers or would-be private, you know, privatizers of, of utilities, this is what they see. And, and um, Puerto Rico's governor... Ricardo Rosseo used that phrase in New York talking to um, in, uh, investors uh, or would-be investors about a month ago where he where he described he described the island as as a blank canvas um, where you can kind of do anything and what that's you know what that's referring to is is the state of desperation of the people that that what disasters do when people are necessarily focused on the daily emergency of life, just getting by because they don't have a roof on their house, because they, you know, the, their workplace isn't open and they have to go to the U.S. to make any money. Um, all of that, it means that people have less energy for political engagement. More of their energy goes into survival, less of their um Energy goes into protecting their political interests. And that's the that's the opportunity that 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 
disaster capitalists see. Um, the opportunity of not having to deal with pesky people with their pesky opinions about, you know, what their lives should be like. And, you know, I, I, I often quote this um, article that came out in the Wall Street Journal a couple months after Hurricane Katrina, written by the very famous late free market economic guru, Milton Friedman. And he wrote this piece in the Wall Street Journal saying, um, you know, New Orleans is, has been evacuated. It's the, uh, the teachers and parents and students are scattered throughout the United States. This is a tragedy. It is also an opportunity, an opportunity to radically remake the education system. And, um, and sure enough, New Orleans, you know, closed down its public schools, fired all of its teachers, and um, and now has the most privatized education system uh, in the United States, the, the, the you know, the, the most charter schools. Um, so so that's that's the appeal of disasters is really just getting the people out of the way, either because they're physically removed, as in the case of, of New Orleans. And, and that's also true of, of uh, um, Puerto Rico right now, that um, you know, somewhere between 200,000 and 300,000 Puerto Ricans have left Puerto Rico and come to the U.S. Mainla- mainland. We don't—they're not keeping solid records. That's the estimate. Um, and uh, and be, and either so either because they're physically gone or because they're there, but they're so focused on the emergency of life that it's possible to push through policies that you would never be able to otherwise because there would be too much resistance. Let's take one little step back. I know you started to define disaster capitalism there, but for folks who have never heard that phrase. I mean, when I, when I use the phrase disaster capitalism, I, I'm referring to just this industry that emerges uh, to profit off of disasters, you know, whether it is the, the the private companies who do the work that used to be done by public agencies uh, to um, provide aid in the immediate aftermath of disasters. A lot of this you know, never used to be a for-profit business, but that really changed with the Iraq War, actually, when the Bush administration started using private contractors like Halliburton and Bechdel and Floor and Blackwater play roles that used to be either performed by government or by nonprofit agencies like the Red Cross. Um, so and and then in addition to that, you know, what I also mean by disaster capitalism is um, the the industries that see opportunities to go even further than just sort of privatize the immediate response to the disaster, but um, to uh, to to make business uh, from the disaster by, say, privatizing the school system or the electricity system. And I also use the phrase the shock doctrine to describe this political strategy of of, of using large-scale shocks to push through these these um, these policies that that benefit a small elite, um, you know, uh, in these moments of sort of of emergency. Are you suggesting? Are you seeing in your research government, uh, the American government? purposefully not helping the people of either New Orleans or Puerto Rico so that uh, this sort of disaster capitalism is able to do its thing? Um, So I think that there is a casualness about the, the relief effort, the failures of the relief effort, because I do believe that there is an understanding that the worse things get, the more palatable it becomes to sell a policy like 
selling off the electricity system, which is the, the, the first, you know, we started hearing about this before Maria made landfall. People, you, the business press was already speculating that in the aftermath of, well, actually first Hurricane Irma and then Hurricane Maria, um, there we would see the privatization of Puerto Rico's electrical utility. And the reason why there was speculation is because there were there were already interests that wanted to do that before the storm. So, look, it's a really hard question to answer. I can tell you that a huge number of Puerto Ricans I spoke with are absolutely convinced that the slowness of the uh, uh, of the response, the fact that it has taken months to get the lights back on, um, at the fact that they're even once they were back on, they started to get threatened with you know having losing their electricity again. The, the, people felt that they were uh, that this was happening to sort of soften them up for the idea of privatization because there's a lot of resistance to privatization in Puerto Rico. Um, and you know if you haven't had electricity for four, five, six months and and you're being told, well, the only way to fix this is to sell off your electricity grid, then you'll reach for anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just human. Um, so I believe it's some mixture, to be honest, of incompetence, of cronyism, and just a kind of a laissez-faire attitude that like, well, you know, if things go badly, that could actually work out for the best because people, um, you know, people people will, you know, will be more willing to accept these unpopular policies. I mean, when I was covering uh, Hurricane Katrina, you know, two weeks after the storm, I was in the city and a Republican co- uh, congressman named Richard Baker said, um, we couldn't clean out the housing projects in New Orleans, but God did, right? Um, he, he, a, a congressman said that to you? Said, well, he didn't say it to me. He was reported in the press. Um, and he said that to some reporter. Yeah, he said it publicly. Um, and, you know, when I was in Baton Rouge, I was talking, I was interviewing lobbyists, real estate lobbyists, you know, that kept talking about blank slate, clean slate. And what they meant was like the poor black people of New Orleans are not here to defend their homes, to defend their schools. And this is valuable property. And, 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 and so, you know, I realize this can sound a bit like a conspiracy theory, which is why I like to quote people, you yeah. know, they don't actually hide it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a question of connecting the dots. I mean, it does sound like a conspiracy theory, but I know how much you and others it, have been working and talking about this and researching this. And uh, I mean, you, you've, it does seem like there are folks in Washington or in various state houses who are saying, if we let them starve, th- many of them will leave. And then we'll be able to, you know, sell this land or sell these services for a at a much better uh, uh, value for all of us. And 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 I think what makes it more obvious in Puerto Rico, and what makes it less of a conspiracy and just kind of straight reporting, is that before the hurricanes. Um, there, there, there was Puerto Rico was was in an economic crisis, and that economic crisis was actively used to attack what little democracy Puerto Ricans have. Right? I mean, Puerto Rico is essentially a colony. Puerto Ricans are not able to vote for the U.S. president. They don't have an elected representative in Congress. Yet they have to live under U.S. laws. Right? Um, they do, however, have the do ability they pay to taxes, vote. Excuse me. Do they pay taxes to the American government? They do. 
They pay taxes. So, so taxation they, without representation. Straight up, right? Wow. Um, but they do have some representation in that they're able to vote for their governor. They're able to vote for their mayors. And in 2016, the debt crisis in Puerto Rico um, was used to pass this law called PROMESA, which effectively did away with this minimal democracy and created a, a, a an emergency management board, which is very similar to the emergency management board in Detroit, in Flint, Michigan, right, where the bankruptcy of a city is used to say, you know what, you, and this is almost always done in in majority black and brown cities to say, we don't trust you anymore to elect your own representatives. Um, because of your economic crisis, this is, we are now going to appoint this emergency management body that is going to make all the economic decisions for you. And we've seen how disastrous that is, has been in Flint. We've seen how disastrous it has been to the school system. In Detroit, it is often used as the pretext to privatize and for brutal austerity. In Puerto Rico, it was done for the whole island. And so there is this fiscal, it's called the Fiscal Control Board. In Puerto Rico, they call it the Junta which has this double meaning because it is, you know, a board, a junta, but it is also like it has this double entendre of a, you know, of a, of a, of a coup d'etat because it because this board is able to um, override the decisions of their governor. The governor has to propose a fiscal plan to this appointed board. Um, and so, yeah, it's 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 um, it, it's it's unmasked colonial rule ever since uh, 2016. So this was already happening, and the fiscal board was already proposing uh, closing hundreds of Puerto Rican schools. They wanted to close more than 300 schools. They wanted to cut the budget of the University of Puerto Rico in half. Um, they wanted to privatize the electricity system. Um, and so and, but they were having trouble and Puerto Ricans were resisting in just a few months. And this was one of the things that I learned when I was there that I didn't know ahead of time was that the movement against the fiscal control board and the movement questioning the legitimacy of the debt um, and resisting these privatization policies really peaked just a few months uh, before Hurricane Maria. So on May 1st, 2017, there was the largest, second largest protest in Puerto Rico's history uh, against these policies and against the fiscal control board. Um, and then, so that's May, and then September, Hurricane Maria hits. And the very policies that they were trying to push through before Maria resurface. Let's close 300 schools. Let's have charter schools and vouchers. Let's sell off the electricity grid. So, I mean, this is why I'm saying it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just, you know, just reporting. They were trying to do it before the storm. They were having trouble. The storm hits. The very same policies come back with vengeance when people are least able to protect their interests. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. 
Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Do you see examples of this in New Orleans of the government saying we're going to be slow to fix New Orleans so that we can uh, revitalize for the rich? I mean, in New Orleans, it was it was so brutal. I, um, it, you know, in that you had a, a total evacuation of the city and this extraordinary thing of um, of of you know it's 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 worth remembering that that people were given one way tickets to every state in the United States and no way to come back right mm-hmm. um, and in their absence you know while they were physically unable to protect their homes and schools um, public housing projects were demolished and replaced with uh, you know what they call mixed-use housing, which means that there are many fewer uh, housing options for low-income people. Um, you know, not to say that the public housing was was wonderful and perfect, but it was so incredibly anti-democratic. So in New Orleans, it was I think it was less the strategy of let's just kind of do nothing. I mean, it was incredibly active the the the, the demolishing of of the um, public. Ha- I think there was a huge rush in New Orleans to get this. Um, this sort of extreme city makeover done. It seems immoral. It seems immoral to allow people to suffer without food and water so that you can create a different economic model in that area. 
You know, Tori, I've always thought so, which is why I'm kind of obsessed with this. I mean, you know, there was a, a young woman who I interviewed. Her name is Monica Flores. You know, she said to me, it's cruel. Like, I asked her how, how it felt to, because she was describing to me that she was, you know, sort of still living in her car and going from, um, you know, friend's house to friend's house to, to do laundry. Um, and and she was somebody who was studying the energy system, who, um, you know, had strong opinions about how Puerto Rico could switch from a fossil fuel-based energy system to renewable energy, but she believed it should remain public, that communities should own and control their own renewable energy projects. And she'd been working with communities um, to do just that, it, you know, and in the, it, and so, you know, I asked her how it felt to turn on the television and see the governor announce that the electricity system was going to be privatized. And she started crying and said, um, you know, it's it's what it feels like is is it's cruel to do this in a moment when, um, you know, of course, people can't engage. In, you know, they're, they're just trying to survive. So I definitely think that there is this vision um, for Puerto Rico's economy that is being advanced um, by some people in government right now in Puerto Rico and has a lot of support in the Trump administration um, for what what is be, what what is what is being called the, the visitor's economy. And the visitor's economy is precisely as you described, like a, a, an economy that is based not just in tourism, but also in this idea that Puerto Rico can kind of grow its economy by attracting uh, the, you know, what, what they call high net worth individuals from the United States, not to come and build factories that create lots of jobs for Puerto Ricans, but just to um to, to change their personal address. So they, they need, there are a couple of laws that were introduced in Puerto Rico um, in, in 2012 that are designed to lure people, particularly from the financial sector who can kind of work from anywhere, to, um, to move their official residence and say their hedge fund to Puerto Rico. And they don't have to pay any federal taxes. Um, and that's always been the case. Puerto Ricans don't have to pay federal taxes. But in addition to that, they don't have to pay capital gains tax, interest, um, tax on dividends. Um, their corporations can pay just 4% tax, which is extraordinarily low. Trump just uh, lowered corporate tax to 20%. And that it, it, in itself was you know, a huge cut. But Puerto Rico's offering 4%. So the idea is that, you know, you you move into these sort of gated communities in Puerto Rico, you lead this resort lifestyle, um, and, uh, you know, and it sort of looks like Puerto Rico's economy is doing better on paper, but this creates very, very few jobs for Puerto Ricans. And, but, you know, you, you, you're able to claim some economic growth. That's the vision. The vision is this visitor's economy kind of gilded bedroom community for Wall Street and increasingly for... Um, cryptocurrency traders. There's a big push um, for um, what some people are, call um, Puertopia um, or, or Soul. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's. I mean, it's this idea that and this is actually a serious thing um, that that some people in the cryptocurrency blockchain um, uh, community 
are are planning to go to Puerto Rico and start their own city. Uh, so not just buy, you know, a mansion on the cheap, but um, buy a huge tract of land where they can actually issue citizenship and everything is paid in cryptocurrencies and they build this sort of libertarian utopia. Um, and, and there was a terrific piece about this actually in the New York Times um, uh, and uh, you know, it's def- definitely worth reading and, and I have some of it in, in my Intercept article as well. Um, but it's really kind of a secessionist fantasy of just kind of being free of all government intervention. But so there's this, that's why uh, you know, I called the, my piece the, the, the Battle for Paradise because there is these two sort of very conflicting visions for what Puerto Rico should be and who it should be for fundamentally. Like, is Puerto Rico for Puerto Ricans or is Puerto Rico, um, you know, this this playground for the ultra rich and maybe some crumbs will trickle down for Puerto Ricans? Well, when you get into the argument of who it's going to be for, it's going to be for those who can best take care of the decision makers. And we have a political system, not just in this country, but <laughs> around the globe, where if government makes money for a for high net worth individuals, that is better for the individuals who are in the government rather than helping the masses who will still have very little, which with, you know, so they can, the high net worth individuals can donate a lot to the individual representatives, governors, congressmen, senators, etc., um, and thus, they the the politicians can help the rich. They're helping each other. The poor are left out of the whole thing. Well, this and this is what's really worrying a lot of people who I spoke with in Puerto Rico is that enough of these high net worth individuals are moving to to Puerto Rico, and they have uh, that they have become a very powerful political lobby, and they have the ear of uh, of their of their governor in a way that regular people don't. Um, so you have this big power imbalance. So even though their numbers may not be huge, their political influence is outsized, massively outsized compared compared to their numbers. Is there a place on the globe where the entire disaster capitalism timeline has played out and it is now, you know, this 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 playground for the rich and the poor have been sort of shunted off to somewhere else and you here's the finished product? Huh. It's interesting. I mean, a lot of people in Puerto Rico, when they think about what the goal is like what 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 the Trump administration would like Puerto Rico to be like why they have so you know been so supportive of Puerto Ricans leaving Puerto Rico right um, uh, and, and why they've been so inept at building rebuilding um, and why there is this um, big push for the visitors economy a lot of people talk about Hawaii um, that they you know people talk about how what they really want Puerto Rico to turn into is is you know something a lot more like what you know parts of Hawaii look like with you know and and that has everything to do with luxury resorts and golf courses so you can understand why that would be appealing to a guy like Donald Trump right is, um, and is Hawaii you know, is a place where poor people have been pushed out or pushed around to create those spaces for the rich Absolutely. I mean, there's been massive amounts of displacement um, in Hawaii, but it hasn't been on this, you know, in in the, I mean, it's been in a much more sort of straight up colonial part of colonial history. Um, and in, you know, it hasn't been in the it, it, exploiting natural disasters in the way that we're talking about uh, in Puerto Rico. But to answer your question of, you know, where has this script played out? I mean, I've I've seen it play out 
in a lot of places. I mean, we've talked about New Orleans, which is a pretty classic example. I also saw it in the aftermath of the Asian tsunami um, in 2005, if you remember that huge, huge disaster that um, that swept the coastlines in um, parts of India, in Sri Lanka, in Thailand. Um, and so what happened, and I, I did my reporting in Sri Lanka, is that, you know, you had this huge wave um, that that cleared the beach, that literally cleared the beach of um, you know, who was living there. And, um, and so hundreds of thousands of people were moved inland into these refugee camps. Um, and, while, and while they were there, their land where they used to fish and where they used to live and where they used to farm, in a lot of cases, was seized to turn into resorts. And this happened in Sri Lanka. This happened in Thailand. So, you know, literally villagers would go back to where they used to live and, and, and they would find that there was, you know, um, private security keeping them from returning there because this was valuable beachfront land. Sri, the Sri Lankan government um, tried to push a water privatization bill two days after the tsunami. Um, so, you know, I've seen this happen again and again. We're seeing it actually happening in Barbuda right now, which was hit by Irma. Um, and if maybe you remember that Barbuda was the island that had to be completely evacuated. Um, and um, because of the governing structure where it's uh, Antigua and Barbuda together, but the Antigua, and there are many more Antiguans and they're more politically powerful. The government of Antigua is right, right now using... Um, the fact that Barbudans were uh, were evacuated and lost so much in the storm to push through uh, uh, a very serious uh, legal change that would um, allow f- foreign developers to um, to move in a way that they hadn't been able to to do in Barbuda. It's a bit complicated. Barbuda has a really unique land ownership structure that prevents private land sales. Um, it's something that's been fiercely defended, um, but in the aftermath of the storm, once again, you, you know, we're seeing laws pushed through that they wouldn't be be able to push through otherwise that benefit private developers. And basically, the rationale is, it's really expensive to rebuild. We have to get the money from somewhere. Where is the beginning of this philosophy of? Well, it's not a philosophy, but in your research. Where is the beginning of the history of disaster capitalism? Where was this first practice? Where did they first start to figure out, oh, when the land gets destroyed, we can come in and do this and push out the poor and make a lot of money? Hmm. I mean, that's a that's that's a complicated question because because um, you know I think the political understanding that disasters sort of soften people up is a really old one. Um, And, you know, it's something that is understood on the left and the right. It isn't something that, you know, only, only, you know, corporate interests have have understood. Um, But the chapter of history that I've focused on is, is specifically how disasters get used to push through these policies of privatization, deregulation, you know, cuts to the public sphere, um, and I date that history back to the 70s. Um, and, you know, I often quote Milton Friedman, who I quoted earlier talking about New Orleans public s- school system. He's, you know, in some ways, he's the godfather of this strategy as it relates to the, the kind of economics that I'm talking about. 
And he wrote in the foreword to his most famous book, Capitalism and Freedom, he said, our job, um, uh, he says, only a crisis, real or or perceived, produces real change. Our job is to keep the ideas available until the politically accessible becomes, the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. Um, And... um, and and for Friedman, the the shock that f- created the first opportunity to introduce these very radical neoliberal economic policies was the coup in Chile in the 70s. And he worked as an advisor for the Chilean dictator, Augusto Pinochet. Um, so that was a different kind of a disaster. It was a political disaster. And the population was, you know, in shock from uh, the overthrow of their democracy, the death of Salvador Allende, but also they were being literally shocked in torture chambers. And then they started imposing what they called economic shock treatment on the population. Um, so, you know, I usually date it back to Chile, but, you know, you can come up with other examples of, you know, I guess, less dramatic versions of this earlier on. Um, And, you know, every political movement has their shock doctors who understood that they needed a crisis to get their agenda agenda through. You know, if we had had this conversation two or three years ago, I would have understood this differently because I would have felt like, well, this is horrible, but these sorts of disasters arise rarely, so this is something that's going to rarely happen in the future. And now seeing the prevalence and the near ubiquity of superstorms because of climate change happening all over the globe, over and over, and we see the pace and the frequency of these sort of superstorms will only increase as we go forward, the opportunities to practice disaster capitalism will only multiply. And that makes this seem really frightening. I, yeah, I agree. Um, and, and, you know, and that's why I wanted to focus on ways that people were, were resisting and ways that it maybe could go another way. One of the things that I found most inspiring is that even with that hierarchy that you're describing, when it came to schools, because because I think people will defend their kids no matter what. Um, and when it seemed like there was a strategy in Puerto Rico not to reopen schools that were ready to be reopened because they wanted to close those schools anyway. And once again, this is not a conspiracy theory. Like there was there was a stated plan by the Fiscal Control Board and the Secretary of Education to close hundreds of schools um, in Maria just to save money just because of the debt crisis. Um, and so when those schools had to close down because of the storm, then what happened is they they weren't being reopened and parents and teachers believed that this was not because of concerns about safety, but because they just planned to just use the storm as the excuse to close down the schools. And now we know that that's true because the governor has announced um, since Maria in the in, in in this fiscal plan that he announced that that 300 schools would would close down, and he also announced that they were going to try to introduce charters, which Puerto Ricans have resisted um, uh, over the years. Um, but but what's been amazing is that in these neighborhoods that still didn't have electricity, that still didn't have water, parents and teachers came together, rebuilt the schools themselves. Um, 
and cleared the debris and brought in their own supplies and occupied the schools until they were allowed to be reopened. Uh, so there are exceptions to this rule of, of, you know, people aren't just kind of rolling over. A- and, you know, and I think there's something about 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 that that commitment to to protect one one's kid. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrivemarket.com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamin a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's that, that, defies, that defies this strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in New Orleans, they got away with it because people were physically not there, right? They physically could not stop it. They were not in their own city. But in Puerto Rico, there's been some amazing organizing by the teachers um, and by parents and by whole communities under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. So this isn't just a story of, you know, of the successful implementation of the strategy. It's also a story of resistance. A climate lawyer uh, who I know, who's a big fan of your work, told me that, you know, what we're heading for is not a future where climate change creates weather effects where the weather specifically damages us. That will happen. But for the most part, we will be able to deal with the weather events that occur. But those weather events uh, will create disruptions and breakdowns in human systems. And those breakdowns will cause massive problems for us. For example, you know, massive famine in, you know, major, say, African country, which causes, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to suddenly mass evacuate. And then you have a massive immigration problem in America and Europe when all these people are coming and, you know, the locals are saying, no, we don't want them. And they're like, well, we need to leave because there's no, there's no, our country is not livable. And you have these massive problems. Um, And though, and this is sort of one part of that future. I think I think that's exactly right. And you know, it's why you know, when people talk about climate change in the future, you know, they often talk about things getting hotter and, and wetter. And it is all those things, but it is also about things getting meaner, um, things getting crueler as 
this feeling of scarcity um, sets in, right? And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that we are seeing surging xenophobia around the world, not just in the United States, but that Europe, for instance, has hardened, you know, the leaders in Europe have hardened their hearts enough that they're allowing thousands upon thousands of people to drown in the Mediterranean. I don't think it's a coincidence that this is happening as the reality of climate change becomes undeniable. And the fact that there are more people on the move today, um, more people migrating today than at any point since World War II. Um, and some of that has to do, um, obviously, much of it has to do with armed conflict, but there is an intersection between climate stresses and armed conflict, including in Syria. You know, before the civil war broke out in Syria, Syria experienced it in the worst drought in its history. Um, and, uh, you know, so many people were moving internally in Syria because of that drought that that became a an, an accelerant to conflict. So it's not just a direct line where you say, you know, drought led to war, but it's one of the factors, right? It is an additional stressor. Um, and and so, you know, I think that there is an awareness now that we are in an era where more and more people are going to have to move in order to survive. And so that confronts humanity with a question about who we want to be in the face of that reality. Are we going to be people who recognize that we are part of a global community of, of human beings, that we created this crisis together. And in fact, people in wealthy countries did a hell of a lot more to create this problem than people in poor countries who are overwhelmingly the people being forced to move. And so therefore, we do need to open our borders. We That does need, you know, our our, our migration policies have to reflect the fact of our human interconnection or do we harden our hearts and say, let them drown? And if we're going to harden our hearts and say this is not our problem, then we're going to need theories of racial superiority that justify that decision. And so I, you know, I think that there is a toxic soup going on right now where um, the surging white supremacy, xenophobia, um, and the fact that climate change is biting are all part of the same system. You know, I think that there are two visions for what Puerto Rico should be after this storm. And I think it's dishonest to, to, to say that there's only this, you know, billionaire fueled, we're going to turn the whole thing into a giant golf course slash cryptocurrency libertarian fantasy. There is another vision for Puerto Rico out there. Um, and it's really beautiful. I'm not saying that we're that that, that it's, this is going to have that happy ending. But I am saying that there is a battle going on for the soul of Puerto Rico. It's heartbreaking what's going on there. I applaud the spirit of those who are fighting back and those who are making a way where there's no way and rest in peace to those who felt they had to check out. The people of Puerto Rico deserve better. As always, I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please tell me what you think of the show, and if you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It really matters. And talk about the show on your socials. Let people know what's going on. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert and Matt Ford and Chris Basil, with hope from Shelby Royston, William Jolly, Candid Nicole, and Cadence 13 Studios, as well as photographs from Chuck Marcus. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks, because the man can't shut us down.
Join us next Wednesday when we'll have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and in following weeks when we've got Marissa Alexander and Titus Burgess and an old friend of Prince who was close to him as a teenager, Andre Simone. Thanks for listening. It's Torre Show. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.